Welcome to the Big Careers Small Children podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I believe that no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For much too long, brilliant people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children, and that leads to gender inequality in leadership and the same stale, mostly male, middle-class people leading our organizations. We absolutely must change this, and I hope that many of you listening right now to this podcast will progress to the most senior leadership roles possible in a way that works for you and for your families, so you can make the decisions that make our world and our organizations better places. Beyond the podcast, I am the CEO and founder of the social enterprise Leaders Plus, which is all about giving parents the support and space to progress to senior leadership in a way that works for them and their families. We have lots of free events and also lots of resources on leadersplus.org where you can download helpful toolkits such as on returning from maternity leave or securing a promotion as a working parent or thriving or surviving depending how you look at it as a dual career couple. We also have an award-winning global fellowship program for working parents who have big dreams for their careers but don't want to sacrifice everything for it. You will join a tight-knit supportive group of people. You'll get space to think about what you want for your life, for your family, for your career, a senior leader mentor and a lot of targeted support in order to get you where you would like to be. And you can find all that on leadersplus.org forward slash fellowship for the details. The next application deadline is on 20th March 2024 and you can download the brochure on leadersplus.org. Today I talked to Dr. Amy Deal and Professor Lian Tubinski about their research into what really holds women back in their careers and what we can all do about it. Enjoy the conversation. A very warm welcome, Amy and Lian, to the podcast. Let's start with you introducing yourself, who you are, what you do for work, and who is in your family. Amy, let's start with you. Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Deal. I am the Chief Information Officer at Wilson College, which is in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, in the United States. And I'm a gender equity researcher, and I have been studying gender bias and gender equity since 2009. So for a lot of years, it's all culminated in, first of all, me meeting Leanne, who will introduce herself in a moment, and in our new book, Glass Walls. So uh, we'll be getting more into that. I'll just save the rest for, for later. But I will say about who's in my family, my immediate family. I, have, I come from a large family that I happen to live near. My immediate family is my husband and my newborn five-month-old son. Lovely. And I'm Dr. Leanne Dubinsky. I now live in Wilmore, Kentucky. I'm a professor of leadership at Asbury Seminary. I just started here this summer, so this is a new position for me. I transitioned from living in California, so it's been a lot of change. Currently living with me and my immediate family are myself, my husband, and our rescued greyhound. I also have two daughters who are grown and living on their own, so I don't get to see them quite as much as I would like. Oh, yeah. It feels like such a far time ahead, but everyone tells me it goes quicker than than you think. And when your children are away and you're like, hmm. So yeah, you're, but clearly, Amy, then in a new life stage, it's very handy to have family who fly in. In my case, my mother and my family fly in 
often from Switzerland to help out, which I'm very grateful for. So I'm interested in what was the spark that made you get started just to think about writing the book? Leanne, did you always have that on your plan or how did it come about? I think for both of us, the Amy can tell her part, but we got interested in this because of our own experiences, right? So my story is I worked in faith-based nonprofits for almost two decades And I realized that women and men were recruited with the same requirements, the same standards, the same everything. But once you were in the organization and got deployed, it became quickly obvious that it was men's career preferences that dominated and women were sort of seen there to support the men. And I saw that women had been doing it for a while were kind of cynical. And that really puzzled me because people who go into nonprofit work are usually pretty passionate about whatever it is they're working on. So why would they be cynical? But as I watched how the organization operated, I saw, oh, it's because the women are not really taken very seriously. They're just kind of invisible. And then I began to see the obstacles in the walls that women ran up against when they would try to lead or try to do something. And so all of this sent me into a process of studying and researching, trying to understand what is it that was going on. And I quickly realized that it wasn't just my organization and it wasn't just this field, but this was a much bigger problem. And so when Amy and I met, and she can tell about that and started talking, we just hit it off immediately because we were like, oh, we want to work on this thing together. Yeah, for me, I became interested in this topic. It actually took a while Um, after I joined the workforce after college. I was a computer science major in college, and computer science is very male-dominated, as we all know. Like a lot of my classes, it was just me or maybe one other woman. But I never felt any barriers related to my gender because as much as as anything is a meritocracy, I felt that my time in college was a meritocracy. And I know the true meritocracy doesn't exist anywhere, but what I mean by that is that I did the work and I got a good, I got the grades, right? So I got all A's, right? Because I did, I put in the effort and I did the work. And so I kind of thought, okay, when I got a job, that's the way the working world would work. You make, you do the effort, you get the reward. <laughs> but what I found out whenever I entered the working world was things weren't quite that way. And for a long time, I thought that I was just doing something wrong. Like I was just it was something personal to me. I wasn't leading in the right way. I wasn't, you know, something was about me that was, you know, I wasn't doing it right. So to learn how to lead in that environment, it was like, what I would do is I would watch the male leaders around me and I would emulate their behavior because they were my like role models, right? And to give one quick example, what I found happening that really started to pique my interest and like maybe there's something different going on here is that I had a male boss and I watched him for a long time and he would, when he would run meetings, if there wasn't consensus at the end of a meeting, when we needed to make a decision, he would just say, okay, we're going to do this. And the team would gladly follow along. Well, I took over a team at at one point during my early career that he had previously led. And I ran the meeting the same way he would. Everybody had their chance to speak their mind, but at the end there wasn't consensus. And I said, okay, we're going to go this way. Well, I found out very, very quickly that I had lost points with my staff by exerting my authority and exerting my leadership. And that that was like the first spark that was like, something's, di- like, something's different here. I did exactly what my male boss did. Why am I getting a different result? Though I started a PhD program in 2009, and that's when I started researching gender barriers that were affecting women in leadership. In 2014, after I finished my PhD, I met up with Leanne at a conference, and we shared our studies that we had done for our dissertations. I had studied women in higher education leadership and the challenges that they faced. Leanne had studied women in nonprofit organizations, uh, faith-based nonprofit organizations, and the challenges that they faced. And we found out that very quickly in talking that our women were experiencing very similar challenges, even though they were coming from very different types of organizations. 
that led us to the conclusion, the quick conclusion that it was likely, the problem was like the problem. I say that in quotes. The problem was that they were a woman in leadership, not that they were a woman in a particular field, but they were a woman in, out in the working world, a mm. woman you know, trying to lead in this world that has been designed by men and for men, but they were like you know, the outsider, the, the person that didn't, that didn't fit. And so that started us on our journey of collaborating together on research. And I don't know, it was maybe a year later, or maybe not even a year later, when Leanne and I, I remember being with her in person, we were working on one of our projects, and we had this idea of writing a book. <laughs> it took us another, how many years, eight years to get there, but that's where that all sparked from. Mm. In my experience, often people write a book because they want the world to know the stuff that they they learn in academia. What was the most important thing that you wanted to open people's eyes on with this book? I think we wanted to open people's eyes on the all the ways that gender bias manifests. We hear that term. It sounds very nebulous and it's like hard to get your hands on. And in fact, a lot of it, is, it feels or seems invisible because it's really a lot of things that are just built into ordinary institutional functioning. Because again, these instit- our institutions historically were created by men for men with men's life patterns in mind, but not but not women's. So our goal was to comprehensively identify all the behaviors and all the processes that make up gender bias, and to also uncover the structure of gender bias, which we did. We laid out the six primary core barriers. These were not like just our favorite core barriers, the favorite barriers that we pulled out of the top of our head. (laughs) We derived these in a very scientific way using our data and using a method called factor analysis. So we talk about them in the book and we talk about all the sub barriers that fit underneath each barrier. So one of our primary goals was to make what was invisible and make this visible and to make this concept of gender bias very concrete and very easy to identify. Mm. I mean, even just hearing this, I have to say I'm feeling slightly overwhelmed just because (laughs) it's not nice to hear that there is structured, you know, robust research out there about the gender bias. And so I was wondering if you could, Leanne, I'm going to throw the challenge at you, if you can just identify if there was one barrier that you think that organizations should start addressing first? I mean, I know it's never simple, is it? But what would be the barriers to start with if you wanted to make a change? And also if you just want to give a bit of the flavor of the research behind it. Right. So that's a hard question because one part of me wants to say the most important place for an organization to start is whatever makes most sense for them. And because different organizations are going to have bigger problems in different areas, to give a sort of a blanket prescription may not be the most useful. We've developed, as Amy said, a scale. So organizations can actually measure what's going on with their women. They can give this survey to their women and find out, oh, our biggest problem is this one. We're not paying equally. Or our biggest problem is we have this sort of male culture where the boys club rules. And so often I think the best thing to do would be to start with that one. However, that said... If you just had to start somewhere, I would probably start with the male culture because that's often the most invisible and it's really where everything else stems from, right? So sexist jokes in the workplace, just the boys club mentality, the sense that men are always in charge, that women are sort of the lower status asking to be let in. If you can get at that kind of attitude, probably that's the best place to start. Mm. It's interesting. I, I, for a few years, I thought that we were really on the way out with that, partly because I moved mainly in circles of women who are very much on, you know, think the same way. However, I then challenged myself to go out and speak to other people 
who were not looking like me, didn't have my gender, turns out, yes, these attitudes are very much there. And if you work in an organization like that, is this something you can do about it? Or is it best to just recognize it and leave? Well, again, it's going to depend on the person, right? In our book, at the end of that chapter, we lay out all kinds of strategies, things that leaders can do to start change the culture, things that allies can do to support their colleagues, and things that individual women can do. And Amy and I certainly believe that leaving is an an option. In fact, I think we both have done that at various points in our life. But maybe that's not your first option, right? Maybe there are other things you want to try first. And so I would never prescribe to a woman, do this or do that, right? Because all of us are different. We have different capacities in any given moment, right? If you're dealing with small children, you may not have the energy to invest in finding another job. Or you may not have the energy to invest in dealing with this stuff. And you may say, I need to get into an easier place for this time in my life. And all of those are good choices. I would not want anyone to feel stuck, though, right? So be proactive. Do something. Doing something is always better than than feeling stuck in, and not doing anything. And was there an element of the research that was most surprising to you? Because you're all, you are women, you've got lived experience, you've researched this for quite a big part of your lives. What stuck out to you when you did it? Was there something that changed your mind? I think for me, it was how ubiquitous it is. And it really doesn't matter whether you are, we'll say, in the social hierarchy, someone who is of lower status or higher status. Like if you, even if you're somebody who's very privileged, very wealthy, that doesn't exempt you from gender bias in society or in organizations. You know, one thing that we see is that some women, in my own research, I found that some women didn't think that they had experienced gender bias. And I think Leanne had this too. For both of our dissertations, just to set the context, we interviewed women leaders within our respective industries. And so we had these like long conversations with these women. I had several women who really didn't think that there was one woman, in fact, told me she didn't believe in the glass ceiling. Another woman told me that, you know, she was like the first female like provost, the first female president in her state system. She had never felt any bias or barriers. And the most surprising to me, because by that point, I had I had come to understand it. Now, if you asked me about it when I was at the beginning of my career, I would have said, oh, yeah, I would have agreed with them. But it was surprising that women had, who had made it to this high of a level, these were like presidents of universities, didn't see it or didn't, you know, didn't sense that it was there. And we actually have a term in our book for that, and it's called gender blindness. It's one of the, the sub-barriers that fits right under the male culture that Leanne was talking about. And it's the idea of individuals who just don't see or sense, you know, gender bias occurring to themselves or occurring to other people. And I want to let Leanne, she's got a nice story about (laughs) one of her women participants with this particular barrier. Yeah. So I interviewed this woman for quite a long time and she continued to insist throughout the two hour interview that she had never run into any barriers or any kind of discrimination. But what was so shocking to me is she would tell me a story For example, she and her husband went to X place to have X meeting with the leaders of this or other organization, and they literally sent her to another room to drink tea while the men had the discussion. And then she tells me she's never encountered any bias. She says, oh, they were just really caring for me and looking out for my welfare. And that was just so baffling to me because I could hear it, but she was so conditioned not to see it that she literally couldn't even name or recognize it. That was shocking. And... One other thing that I think was shocking for me was how many things Amy and I found, like she mentioned gender blindness, how many other things we found that woman after woman told us about, and there were literally no names or words in our collective vocabulary to describe what was going on. So there's so much stuff that was happening to women that 
left them with that feeling of unease, like, I don't know if that was bias or not. And so we worked really hard to create names for things to help women identify, oh, that's what that was. That's why it made me feel bad. And here's how I can work to fix it next time around. You're probably not allowed to name favorites, but I'm curious, what's your, at this moment in time, what's your favorite word, Leanne, that you would have loved to be absorbed English language? My favorite right now is man-termediary. That is using a man as an intermediary for a woman to get her ideas across in a meeting or a context. So a woman has a repeated experience of going to a meeting. She can't get anybody to listen to her ideas. So she starts using the strategy where she pulls some male colleague aside ahead of time and gives him all her ideas, primes him with everything so that he can go in and present for her. Mm. Now, the upside is her ideas get now heard, but the downside is everybody thinks they're his ideas and she doesn't get any credit for all this brilliance that she's has going for her. And I'm sure quite a few of the female listeners can really recognize that. How about you, Amy? Do you have a favorite at the moment? Yeah, this one affects anybody, any woman that has like a professional title. So we came up with the word untitling. And I had been on Twitter for a long time and I had seen as we were working on this research and, you know, writing this book. And I had seen many women complain about women professionals, like women physicians, for example, women professors, complain that they were called by their first name while their male colleague was called with his appropriate title, whether that was doctor or professor or coach or reverend, any of the other titles that are out there. And, you know, we recognize, recognize, of course, that this didn't have a just didn't have a name. They would describe the behavior, but there's no label for it, right? And so in doing the research for this book, we had this came up, this came up in our data and we knew we needed to coin a term for it. But one of the things I did was I went to Google and I typed in like omitting titles, right, in Google. Do you think that comes up with anything useful? Not in the sense of what we were looking for. Those words are just so, you know, kind of bland and like, you know, they can apply a title, it can apply to a lot of different things. And so the one thing I say, without a, not only without a word to identify something and label something, you don't have a way to talk about it, but you also don't have a way to search the internet for it. It can make it very, very uh, challenging. And so we coined this term untitling, and I put it out there on Twitter, and then later we published an article in uh, Fast Company to put the term out there. And then, of course, it's in our it's in our book, and it's been very heartening to see that people are now using it both on Twitter and also in published uh, research and published articles. And I will call out, there was one newspaper that used the term and didn't credit to us, <laughs> <laughs> which is another t- thing we talk about in the book, this lack of acknowledgement, but the term was used. And the person who they had, they had interviewed somebody and she knew that it was our term. And she even told the newspaper that, Hey, this was, you know, you should indicate that it was coined by, you know, Amy Deal and Dominsky and then the newspaper just ignored our request. Too often, organizational structures are not set up for working parents to thrive and progress their careers. And that's one of the root cause for the frequent feelings of guilt or feeling stuck in our careers that many of us experience. It is a root cause of why so many parents are plateauing in their careers, which leads to that terrible lack of women in senior leadership. We at Leaders Plus help to change this through our amazing community of alumni from our fellowship program, all our work with employers, and of course, our research. But right here, right now, in an often imperfect environment, I believe working parents do deserve support to develop and progress their careers in a way that works for them. 
Too often it is lonely in a leadership role with children. And I believe you deserve, we all deserve, a supportive community of peers around us. In a hectic world, you deserve time and space to think what you want for your career and family life so you can make it happen. In a world where the privileged learn through old boys clubs about how to progress their careers, we all deserve to access that information about what really gets you to your dream role so that we can implement it in a way that works for us, that doesn't require us going for drinks with the boss every evening uh, on long evenings out because we are, want to be there for our children. Those are just some of the reasons why I set up the Leaders Plus Fellowship Programme and I would love for you to consider to apply. Here are some of the voices from our previous fellows. The Leaders Plus Fellowship has ultimately it's changed my life. The fellowship really has changed my life and I'm, I'm in the process of returning to work now and I can't wait. I can't wait to make a change, to put myself first, to build up my team, to build up those around me and to really make a difference. Thank you. I completed the Leaders Plus programme in 2021 as I was returning from mat leave with my second child. It was game changing for me. My advice to anyone considering whether they deserve such a support programme is don't hesitate do prioritize, do fight for the time to get clear on why and how you will work it. I offer my absolute support and encouragement to anybody that's considering the program. Download the brochure from our website, leadersplus.org. And if it is of interest, apply by 20th March, 2024. But anyway, <laughs> I'm so heartened <laughs> to see it being used. And I recognize it so much. And it really is such an important thing. I think we do it way too much and it happens all the time. And the funny thing is we even do it ourselves. We have to take our son to the doctor a lot. Mm -hmm. And so often, you know, the female doctors are introduced to me by the nurse as doctor, as Amy or as Laura, whoever it is. And then it is doctor so-and-so for, for the man. And it just happens all the time. And it's so, I love that you've created a word for it. We definitely must share that list. So how many words do you have? You have two favorites. And what, what are the other words? I'm really curious. Sorry, I should have read the book, but my kids have been ill all the time. So I haven't, I fully acknowledge. One is role in credulity. That's when women aren't recognized as having the leadership or the role that they have. They're assumed to be lower level position. Gender blindness, I think we mentioned, keeps women from even understanding, or people from understanding that this even exists. Diminishment is a tool that's used to make women seem less important in the workplace. Untitling and uncredentialing, which we mentioned. Uncredentialing is when the credentials are omitted in written pieces, like a published article or something. The mantermediary, I mentioned. Credibility deficit, when women's statements are just not believed because they come out of the mouth of a woman. So if you're sitting in a meeting and you say something and somebody turns to the guy sitting next to you and says, is she right or is that right? That's credibility deficit. You've just been doubted, even though it's your expertise. On that note, I can guarantee a lot of people hearing you talk and seeing your book, probably not buying it or reading it, but just seeing it, will say, well, actually... No, gender equality has been sorted and please don't be that demanding and annoying. And I think it is those people that we need to convince. It is those people, I want to convince people at board level who are still too often 
middle-aged, middle-class or up-class white males, how do we convince them that this is happening? Great question. And uh, the thing I'll say about our book is that it is geared towards, Leanne mentioned the three levels, leaders, allies, and individual women. We've got strategies for all three, but we really do put the onus on leaders to make the change in their workplace culture. So to get leaders to be aware, it's really hard to put the onus on people who are the change or the people who are being discriminated against. You know, and so what we do in our role is get this exposure out there. You know, we get our writing out there, like in popular press, and we talked about Fast Company and Harvard Business Review and places that, you know, organizational leaders where they consume their media and their learning. And of course, the book. It is a big question. And that's so, you know, one of our goals is to get this in front of leaders and get them understanding that not only is gender equality the right, like the morally right thing to do, but it's actually better for their business. And we know that organizations with, that have gender diverse boards, gender diverse leadership teams, and have gender diversity throughout the organization, they just perform better, you know. And there's been studies that have, that have shown that. So, you know, it's really about getting this information out in front of them and continuing to make it an issue. Like this, unfortunately, this is not something that's going away and it's not something that's going away easily. While I think things are improving, it's a slow, slow, slow process. And so the other thing is that we continue to talk about it, right? And don't let it drop and don't let the sense of, oh, that's an issue that's, you know, long gone, you know, women have equality. Like in theory, women have equality, but not in reality in so many domains. Thank you for everything you're doing. And I know even for really distinguished researchers like yourselves, you are, it can be an uphill struggle to get this on the agenda. So a big, big thank you for me and I'm sure our listeners for that. Um, I'm interested in the motherhood element of this. And we've done a survey with about 900 parents in our community and 44% said that they had comments about their commitment at work as a result of being parent and their parental responsibilities. And I just wondered... Have you had themes of additional extra walls come up in your research for mothers at all? I know you can't research everything, so it might not have come up, but I'm interested. Do you want to take that one or do you want me to take it, Leanne? I'll start and then you can pick it up. How's yeah. that? So yeah. for sure, we heard about their commitment being questioned. I mean, that's definitely a common one. One of the things we discovered is that too many times organizations seem to measure commitment by how long a person is in the office rather than what they actually get done. And so we heard from woman after woman that they're more efficient, they get it done, and then they go home to take care of their kids. But because they're not there for 17 hours the way their male colleague is, now who knows what he's doing in his office, but he's seen as more committed. And so those are one of the strategies there, of course, is just to give people actual goals and measure what they accomplish. Don't just look at how long they happen to be logged on or in the physical space, because that's not a good measure of success. One of the other themes we saw was that regardless of parental status... <laughs> women were expected to do more to prove their worth. And so in regards to parental status, we'd have women who are mothers who would say, I have children and I feel that I must do more to prove my worth within my organization. Then you'd have women that did not have children who would say the same thing. I don't have kids. And so therefore I'm expected to do more and work harder than my colleagues who do have kids. And so what was really interesting about that was, again, it, it underscores that it was the bias was against the women, <laughs> right? Regardless of whether they had kids or not. And so I found that to be like truly fascinating. Mm. And that women who are child free sometimes also get these assumptions made about them of that they're going to have children and therefore they're not committed in the first place. Oh, she got married. So therefore 
as discounter. Yes, we definitely saw that in our data too, where women who did not have children, even women who weren't planning on having children were discriminated against because of hypothetical future children that they did not have and were not even planning on. It was She's a woman. She's a young woman of childbearing age. Therefore, she might have children. Mm. And so therefore, they were second guessing, you know, or second thoughts about hiring or promoting them. Absolutely. One thing I was curious about was, With your book, you've called it glass wall rather than glass ceiling. And I'm just interested, where did that come from? Well, the glass ceiling is pretty well known and has been popularized. And everybody is aware of that idea that there's something that stops women from progressing. But when Amy and I were looking at the research, we really became convinced that it's more than just a glass ceiling. So the glass walls are meant to represent these things that women run into at work over and over again. They bump up against them. They can't see them. Like Amy, as a young IT professional, didn't even see that this was a barrier, but she certainly kept smacking up against it. And so we wanted to give women a way to describe what was happening when they bump into these things that they couldn't see, but that actually do have significant impact on their careers. And constrain them, keep them boxed in. Yeah, I I really like, well, I don't like the idea, but I think it describes very well this idea of that you have these invisible walls. One thing our listeners are particularly interested in is the topic of visibility. And exactly with this point of having to rush home or actually wanting to work from home while everyone else is going back to the office. And I know your book is not a self-help book. However, can I still ask if you have found any good practice of managing that visibility conundrum and making sure that your ideas are heard and that you are seen as as a high performance, not the man who you fed your ideas to? Well, it can be hard because especially if that man is your boss, it can be hard to overcome that perception because that person has a lot of control. But in terms of the visibility thing, one of the things that I like to say and suggest that women do is Become comfortable with self-promoting. And we know why women aren't always comfortable with self-promoting because they can get backlash. And we're also socialized not to do it. But I think that women can be thoughtful about how they can get their accomplishments out there. And sometimes knowing that that backlash exists, it's sometimes the only way, (laughs) safe way to get a credit to you out there is to have your butt a friend do it or a colleague, right? like to feed that to somebody else who can announce it for you. Like, hey, did you see what Amy just did? You know, she led the team through this really hard project and, you know, she did it under budget and, you know, and on time. It can be really helpful or it can feel easier for that to come from someone else. But any chance that you have just to be authentic and say, yes, I did this and I, you know, I led the team and I, you know, we were on budget or under budget and on time, like, you know, make sure that you are thinking about what are opportunities I can share that. And in particular, in like an interview situation, I mean, that's a time where self-promoting is expected. So don't, you know, if you're going into an interview or promotional interview for a new position or promotion, you know, don't undersell yourself, you know, make sure that you're saying, I did this, I did that. And be clear, like when it was you or when it was, you know, you and you were leading the team and the team also contributed to your success. I don't think that people should take credit where credit's not due, but they should not downplay their own role. Sometimes I've heard people, women in interview type situations saying, we did this and we did that. And that can lead someone on the interviewer side to, to think, did this woman really do it? Or was it other members of the team or you know, her colleagues or something? So that's my quick tip. Say, don't follow up with a disclaimer or a but or a mm-hmm. self-diminishing mm-hmm. comment, right? Like, 
I led my team and we did X, but it was no big deal. No, yeah. <laughs> you know, don't, yeah. don't add that on. We're so conditioned to do that kind of thing. That's so interesting that you are saying this from an American perspective, which is, I think in Britain, that's, you know, we, we, and Switzerland, where I'm from, even, it's even worse. It's so expected, but even you found it in the US context that people do that much too much and it undermines you, doesn't it? Fascinating. So the outliers, those people who do go on to senior leadership, despite all the challenges, is there something in common there? Are there environments where there aren't any walls? Or is it something unique about these individual women? I don't think it's a uniqueness thing because, I mean, what we show in the book is how systemic everything is. And so one of the barriers that we talk about in the first chapter, the male privilege chapter, is something called male gatekeeping. And male gatekeeping doesn't mean that it doesn't allow any women into roles, but instead it means that there are male gatekeepers who choose and select certain women (laughs) that go into basically token roles. And it generally is the women they think will be supportive of the male culture and who won't challenge them. (laughs) And so when you say if there's something unique, sometimes it's those women that get chosen and they're used as an example. They're, They're made highly visible. Look at how much diversity we have in our organization because we have this one woman or two women on our leadership team. And then there's like nothing, like we're doing nothing, you know, throughout the rest of the organization. You know, so I think that's that there is nothing like it's all systemic. So the organizations that are doing better are the ones that are actually thinking about gender equality in terms of representation and positions throughout the organization, as well as equal pay. That's another huge thing to make sure that there's no pay disparity based on gender. So, you know, that's what I would say. The other thing is sometimes we see like you'll have like a board, you know, the board at the top of the organization, again, where maybe there's a woman or two and they're token women. And so it makes the male culture permeate. And so if you can get your board (laughs) to be, you know, much more gender equal, and make sure that the gender equality and equal gender representation filters down through the rest of the organization, that can be a very helpful thing. Mm. I think there's something else we'd be really interested in case you want to do further research. I'm sure you're doing further research, but there's something that I've been thinking about, which is this flexibility in senior roles and how, in a way, there's, I don't know why it is so difficult to have a job share or a part-time CEO. Clearly it is possible. We've interviewed people for this podcast who are doing, you know, very senior role part-time or in a job share. But I think almost be, partly maybe because it's quite a female thing, sadly, not that many men are able to access flexible working. It feels like that's an additional, I don't know if it's a glass wall or something. You progress to a certain level and you're told to be grateful that you can do it flexibly. And then if you want to go higher, please don't ask for flexibility or any of those perks in quotation marks, like seeing your children's Christmas play. We're recording this around Christmas. I'm sure a lot of working parents, mums and dads, want to go and see their children's Christmas play. And we should make it loudly okay to leave. And a lot of senior leaders do leave. Sorry, I don't mean to go on a rant here, but I think there's something in there. What do you think about that? Well, I think a lot of this goes back to something that we spoke about very briefly at the beginning, which is that our organizations have mostly been built by men, for men, with men's lifestyle patterns in mind. And so there's something called a greedy career, which is the idea that you should be available 24-7 for the career. And of course, that assumes that any personal life is being taken care of by someone else. So men who have stay-at-home spouses to care for children and laundry and food and, 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 and can engage in this so-called greedy career, which is also often what the top of any organization is structured to be like. And so if we want to change that, we've got to rethink 
how do we structure work? Is this really reasonable for any person? Is it healthy for any person to be 24-7 connected to their workplace? Do we all need some time to disconnect and to think about different ways of doing work and doing family? I think also sometimes the people in those senior leadership positions, they do have more latitude than they maybe what they, they show. And I think that to the extent that any of them have latitude, they should be modeling that kind of flexibility in their own work. And one example is this whole concept of parental leave. If you're a CEO or you're a vice president or whatever you are, and you have a child or your female spouse has a child, (laughs) you should also take the leave and model that, you know, as like, this is an appropriate behavior and also truly disconnect. You know, it's, you know, don't take the leave and then be like working. Having just gone through this recently, I don't know how anybody has time. to work while on a parental leave, especially you know, with a new child. But we just need to make sure that, again, that the flexibility is modeled from the top of the organization. Mm, absolutely. We do have a surprising amount of senior leaders listening to this, which I discovered by coincidence. So a lot of our wonderful senior leader mentors who support our parents are listening. And they're obviously very invested in changing their organizations. A lot of them are women themselves. They're not academics. Where should, obviously, buy your book. It's not a bad start. Mm -hmm. But other than that, what can they do to start driving that change? One of the first things we recommend, and this is in the book, in the next to last chapter, I think it's chapter eight, I believe. We provide a roadmap and it goes through six levels of gender equity and inclusion. And the first thing an organization can do is read that section of the book and assess which level you're on. It starts all the way at level zero, which is like an organization that does nothing. (laughs) And then it goes all the way up to level six, which is like fully inclusive, fully gender inclusive and gender equitable. And in the final level, you've got sustainability, you know, so that if even if there's turnover in the organization, you know, the gender equity and inclusion continues. But again, the first thing I would say is assess where you're at. And in the book, we take it step by step so that you can say, hey, maybe my organization is at level two. So what can you do then to advance yourself to level three? And we give some specific tips in the book of how to progress up the levels. And I'll say too, so we are two academics who wrote this book, but the book is not written for academics. The book is written for the regular business person, and it is full of stories. So if you're listening today, don't feel like you're not going to be able to read or understand because... We really tried to write it in a way that the average person working in any kind of business could read the stories, understand what women are talking about, relate to their experiences, and just to write something that's very practical and down to earth. Sounds like an ideal gift (laughs) to be shared with some board members. I know there are lots of things that we could still talk about. And I wanted to just, because we're coming towards the end of our time together, I wanted to give you the floor if there's anything else that you think is absolutely important for this particular group of people listening to share with them? I'd like to share that there is hope. <laughs> the final chapter of our book is basically a message to the women and how they can improve their own situation. And our book isn't a fix the woman book. It isn't a book that tells women how to act or how to dress or how to speak. We want everyone to be able to be their authentic selves at work and be you know, truly accepted. But we know that women are encountering gender bias. And the first question that we're usually asked is, what can I do? <laughs> And so we wanted to leave women with strategies and our strategies are 
general strategies for how you overcome adversity, which if you think about what gender bias is, it's a type of adversity. And so we want to say like, there is hope. And, you know, I've said that the change has been slow, but I have seen positive change within my career. And one of the biggest things I've seen is just um, the visibility of the issue. And there's a lot more research going on about it. There's a lot more discussion in popular press. There's a lot of people working on this problem. So I'm very heartened that we are slowly, <laughs> slowly inching our way forward and combating this issue. And my parting comment would be, again, don't feel stuck. Do something, whether you're the woman suffering or whether you're an ally or whether you're a leader, pick something and work on it because that's the best thing we can do. The worst thing to do is to just do nothing and throw up our hands and feel like it's hopeless, but it's not hopeless. We've mapped out all the pieces and some of them are easier and some of them are harder, but you can pick one and start working on it. Mm, Absolutely. And I think there's something also about finding people who are, it can be quite a lonely place, especially if you're like you, I mean, where you used to be with lots of IT people from a different gender, but I think one of the reasons I've designed the Leaders Plus Fellowship Program how it is, is because actually if you put great people together, you don't have to do that much and they're already (laughs) making a difference together. (laughs) So I think that's a powerful, powerful thing. And where can people find out more about your work and your book? Amy, let's start with you. Yeah. So I have a website. It's Amy, A-M-Y dash D as in David, I-E-H-L. Dot com. So that's my name, amy-deal.com, where there's information about our work, but also the book. And there are order links. This book is available through all the major online resellers, both in the United States, where it was published, and internationally. And we've got a lot of the links to the, the key larger resellers right on, right on my webpage. Fantastic. And I presume you're both on LinkedIn as well. Yeah. Wonderful. Yes, we're both on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter, Threads, Mastodon, <laughs> like all of them. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much both. It's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you and we'll share a link to your book and your work in the show notes. All right. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Verena. It was lovely. Thank you so much for listening today. And a special thank you to all of those of you who have connected with me on LinkedIn in the last few weeks. I really, really love hearing from listeners and hearing how you enjoyed the show. So it means a lot. Thank you so much. If you would like to be in touch in real life, do consider joining the Leaders Plus Fellowship Program. It is such a fantastic community of working parents supporting each other to find a way to get careers where you can make a big difference in senior roles, but also do that unapologetically in a way that works for us. And if you want to apply, then the deadline is 20th of March. You can download the brochure for the program on leadersplus.org. Podcasting is also quite a male-dominated environment. If you look at the top charting podcasts, especially outside of the kids and family space, very often it's all led by men. I can't remember the numbers, but it is very male-dominated. Just take a look at the charts. And interestingly enough, more females than males listen to podcasts. So another unequal space. And thank you for supporting this podcast by listening to it. But if you want to help us I guess, have more influence in the space, then please do help by sharing it with your friends and by leaving a five-star review. Thank you so much to all of those of you who've done that already. Have a wonderful week. Mm -hmm.